Hello, this is Peter Jonathan Robertson with the 52nd episode from the PJ Archive. It's an interview I did with the British singer-songwriter and musician Roger Hodgson, best known as the former co-frontman and founder member with Rick Davis of the massively successful progressive rock band Supertramp. Roger left the group in 1983 and has been largely solo since. This interview took place in London in 2007, when US-based Roger was promoting a live DVD called Take the Long Way Home. The night before we met, he had performed at the Concert for Diana at Wembley Stadium, a benefit show commemorating the late Princess. So I began by asking Roger when he first became aware that Diana was a fan of Supertramp. I'd heard from various sources um, that she was very much liked Supertramp, liked the songs I wrote for Supertramp. So after hearing a few times, then I started believing it. <laughs> you can never tell, but one of the princes told, confirmed it last night. But I, I, I already knew it. I mean, that was the reason I was invited, was because Supertramp was one of her favourites. The Sun a couple of weeks ago said uh, Diana used to dance around Kensington Palace to Supertramp hits. Mm-hmm. So um, were you even aware of that much, or was that a nice surprise? I wasn't aware she danced around mm. the palace. I mean, I quite believe it, because mm. she was just a, such a fun-loving person. And um, very unstiff, if you like, you yeah. know, as we consider the royal family yeah. to be. I mean, she was very, uh, she was one of the people much more, and she was just loved life. I think that's the thing I'm trying to say. She just, so uh, I can imagine her dancing and singing. And actually, William told me last night they used to sing Supertramp songs all the time as a family. So that really touched me. Did you ever meet her? <clears throat> Did you ever come close to her? No, I didn't. Yeah. I mean, ironically, I left the band in '83, and the the bastards <laughs> no I shouldn't say that <laughs> no, I'm joking we'll get on to that later <laughs> <laughs> no it was it was it was like uh, ironically because they did play for her in 86 oh. at Albert Hall they came they went to see her well that's and I think, for leaving isn't it what? that was your fault for having left by then <laughs> <laughs> well we'll get to that too yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um no but I think I think that just left a that was a little painful because I'm I'm I don't know, I relate to Diana because she she loved life. I know I love life, and I know that came through my songs much more than Rick's songs. So I have a feeling uh, that she really was drawn to the song I wrote more than Rick's songs. So for her to, her to go to a Supertramps and either not hear my songs or hear a, a side man singing my songs um, <laughs> left a bit of, bit of a gall in my throat. Did you follow her career much? Did you watch the wedding? Did you watch her funeral? I watched watched enough, yeah. Because last night there were quite a few little excerpts of her life shown. I don't know if they were shown in the stadium. They're certainly shown on TV, and they were very moving. I wondered how how moved you'd been by the whole yeah. experience yesterday. I just saw a bit on the monitors. I, I'm just very glad that they reminded people of, of who she was, because I know there's been you know. People tend to really dwell on the negative so much, and um, God, you know, she was a really wonderful, simple person who was thrown in the deep end. Suddenly, became royalty, and and had a, all the cameras focused on her for every second of the day, and she was expected to deal with it. And she, I think I thought she handled it very, very well, and used her no- notoriety to bring attention to a lot of really worthy 
causes. So she really did the best of the situation she was given and did it very well. Like JFK's assassination, we all remember where we were when we heard the news that Donald mm -hmm. died. So where were you and what was your reaction? I think I was actually in France. I think I might have even been in Paris when I, when I heard all... I went to Paris straight afterwards. It was very strange going to the scene even of, of the tunnel where it happened. Did you visit the scene then? I think I drove past it, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, um, weeks later, no, weeks la weeks later. Yeah, yeah. I, it was I was in a taxi. I didn't go there intentionally. No, no, no it was just uh, she left a big hole. I mean, if you think about it, who else? Who else really brought out that much um, affection? Who's in the any who, name another person in the in England anyway, in the public eye who who has that brings out that kind of affection? I mean, people are liked one day and then torn apart the next. You know, that seems to be a pattern that happens in the media, but, but she really sustained herself. She really won the people's affection, and even those who wanted to bring her down, they, they weren't able to. And I, think it, I think it really was because she just had a... She was a good person. She just had that sense of goodness that came through um, her photos and everything she did, and, she, and it carried on into her, all the, the work she did. This seems to have come at the perfect time for you because you have made this DVD and it's coming mm -hmm. out in shortly. Mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of perfect timing that this event should happen to sort of bring you yeah, back. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, it's it's interesting to be have been gone for so long and come back and suddenly have this come in. It's almost like I'm the prodigal son returning. But uh, it, it, it's emotional. It's actually very emotional for me to, to come back to my home homeland because... Uh, I did do a kind of good job of leaving and not returning, and not intentionally, but that's just the way it happened. So, and to come back and to be welcomed, like I have been, both in the one show I did last year and, and at Wembley yesterday, it's, it's. Uh, I mean, after so long, I think it's amazing, actually, that the, the music is still alive, the songs are still alive, and that um, there can be so much warm reaction. Yeah. You know, it's, it's wonderful. I'm really looking forward to the English tour very much. I must say, Eve, as well, yesterday, you perform with a lovely <coughs> enchanting smile that wins people over instantly. Because uh -huh. I hadn't really uh, concentrated on you as a solo artist before I saw the DVD. And yeah. it really drew me in, like I think a lot of people, uh -huh. yesterday as well. So yeah. That's good. I know it. It boggles me that, that there aren't many, there aren't more artists smiling. Yeah, it's better. You, you know? seem very contented. Well, yeah. I mean, I, it's not something you can force, but I mean, it's really something. Uh, when I'm on stage playing these songs, it's definitely my element, and I'm very happy doing it. If I can get over nervousness, but it's funny enough, just the act of playing gets me over it. I'm suddenly, I can feel like shit <laughs> before I walk on stage, and oh, I gotta do this again. Oh my god. But the moment I hit that stage, it's almost like I, I, something switches, uh, something takes over. And I think it's because I love people, and I love giving to people, and uh, I'm, I'm just really blessed to have a gift of these songs and my music to be able to give in that way. I mean, I just really feel very fortunate. You do the <coughs> Trooper Trump hits in a slightly different way now. Is it mm -hmm. how you always wanted them to be? I don't know whether it's that or whether it's just I've changed. They've changed. They, they tend to be a bit more peppy now. I listen to Take the Long Way Home. It's, it feels very sluggish now. It's much more crisp and bouncy now when I sing it, but that's just the way I feel it. And um, I can say that for a few few songs too. It's the same. You know, when, when you record a song, unfortunately that becomes the version that people always refer to. But it's actually only one time you play it. And sometimes it, it fits the tempo of the time or whatever, the mood of the time. But ten years later, I mean, life feels like it's getting faster anyway. So some of those <coughs> versions just feel really... Uh, 
Come on. So when I play them now, they've, I think they've got more bounce, more life. I, I know I'm singing them way better now than, than I did back then. Where do you live now? Uh, California. And that's been your home since, what, 74 or something? Uh, yeah, actually 70. Well, I, I lived in Los Angeles initially and then um, moved to California in 79. <laughs> actually, what did I say? Cali moved to Northern California. Okay. Uh, actually, it was a, a place called Nevada City. That's when I when I right. had it, my first child. I decided to right. get out of Los Angeles, and that's when I moved up to towards Lake Tahoe up there. Is that where you are now? Yeah, that's right. my base. But pretty much, I'm in a suitcase most of the time now. And so you're back here now touring or seeing. Mm -hmm. um, are you going to make a point of visiting places where you grew up and where you were born in Portsmouth and places like that? Just a sort of nostalgic trip, or are you not interested in that? Uh, no, probably not. No, that doesn't... Uh, I mean, I, I, I've been back. It's not like I haven't been back. I just haven't done concerts yet. I think that on when I go on the tour, I'll probably look around a bit on the days off and stuff. So um, how do you feel about England now? Are you now a Californian man and that's it? You know... England is a thing of the past? Or? No, I'm, I, I don't really feel like... Um, I don't know why I feel. I don't really feel Californian either. I feel like a universal, if you like. I love the English. And I, f I feel like I've kept the, the English traits I like. I think California has allowed me to... I mean, I had, I had an upbringing. I had 10 years in boarding school, which was, again, pluses and positives and negatives with that, yeah. And I think... For me, going to California, California at the time I, I, I went there anyway, it was just a very, I felt like I, I was free. I don't know why. I think it's because it was sunny for starters. The weather helped, helped that. And it was just there was a lot of more free thinking back then. Yeah. And still is today, but um, it's more global now. Mm -hmm. But back then, it was much more California was where if you, you wanted to be a certain way, you could. And people didn't judge you for it. And I think England's loosened up a lot and become more global, but um, it, I felt a little confined back then, and so going to California was um, very liberating for me, and I was able also to get into a lot of the things that I was into back then. I mean, I remember, I was, for example, I was a vegetarian back there, back then in 72. Well, if you were vegetarian in England, you were, you were a weirdo, <laughs> you know? But if, but in California, like, like there was a health food store on every corner. So yeah, so lifestyle-wise, it, it really was very conducive to what I wanted to do and who I wanted to be back then. Now, I mean, I I, I really enjoy everywhere. I, I think I, there are positive there's things I like and and maybe don't don't like about every culture, including America, including California. I mean. And I, as I travel a lot, I don't, almost don't think I, I don't think of California as my base, even though I do go back there and I do have a house there. I'm hardly ever there. I tour and then often I'll just stop and spend a month in Switzerland, for example. And so I'm very fortunate that I have a very free lifestyle right now. Do you have a home here at all, or just? No, in I don't. Just in California at the moment. Can you tell us about your parents? Um, mm -hmm. Are they still with us? No, my father died. My mother actually was there last night. She stayed the whole show. I couldn't believe it. I, she called me at two o'clock this morning. She was wired, <laughs> absolutely wired. I've never heard her like that. She was so excited, and not just because I was on the show. I mean, she loved everything about it. She had so much to say about every act. So, if you want to do an interview, you can call her. <laughs> she lives uh, near Oxford. My dad was. Um, I really didn't see much of my dad through my life. I mean, he was, uh, he, they divorced when I was 12, and I never really saw him again until much later. 
he was in the Navy. That he, explains he, yeah. yeah. He used to travel a lot. It was my mother that raised me for the most part. So your dad sort of left you for quite a long time, and then when mm -hmm. you met him again at what age? I think it was around 20, 24. So about when you became so successful? About another, yeah. He came to a show or two, and we kind of reconnected. But by that time, I mean, I liked him, but uh, he didn't. He didn't kind of feel like my father anymore. But we we stayed on good terms until he died. So I don't think he would have really supported me going to music. I really have my mother to thank for that. She was really very supportive of uh, my love for music, even from an early age. She was my biggest fan, so... Well, any history of music in your family prior to you? Well, that's probably the thing I thank my dad for the most, is when they divorced, he left his guitar behind. I'm not quite sure whether he forgot it or whatever, but I inherited it. Acoustic guitar? Acoustic guitar, yeah. yeah kind of a funky old acoustic guitar. He used to play uh, Freight Train and Hang Down Your Head, Tom Dooley. Do <laughs> <laughs> and you remember that from when... I do remember those two songs, yeah. He never used to let me touch his guitar or touch the piano that we had in the house either. That was... They were off limits. <laughs> but uh, so it was when he left... That that somehow the guitar got left behind, so I took it to school, and that was it. I took it to um, boarding school with me, and um, a teacher there showed me three chords and and let me use his study in between classes. And I used to rush from the classroom to the to the study and play madly for ten minutes, and then go to my next class. and And uh, that's how I learnt guitar. And did you go to prep school before you went to Stone? Yeah. Which prep school were you at? A Woodcut House. Were you happy there? Yeah, I think I was. Hmm. Mixed feelings. Yeah, mixed feelings. I mean, I think I think it was more nurturing, but uh, I remember also being totally traumatized initially when I went there. It was a huge shock. Uh, I think I think it is. I mean, maybe some. I, I just don't think uh, any children are ready to be, you know, left leave their parents at seven or eight. That's that's way too early. I think by the time you're a teenager, yes, that's a natural time when you don't want to be around your parents. So that's maybe a good time. But, Seven or eight is way too early. Do you think they so, were damaged by being sent to his boarding school? Um, yeah, I think there was there was there was some damage. I think I'm I'm through most of it now, and I'm you know I, I'm not uh, I'm grateful for it all because it's really made me who I am today. But uh, it it was it was very tough. I mean, it, ten years of I remember I left the school at eighteen. And I, I didn't know how to relate to a girl at all. Me too. Yeah, I mean it was, and and I think also it's um, there's no there's you, you lose any nurturing. There's no nothing yeah, nurturing yeah. at school. If you're lucky, you have a nice matron. Oh. You know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but there's otherwise it's all all male. And I think that's really creates an imbalance in your being because you have to shut off a lot of your being to survive. Yeah. And I think anything anytime you shut anything off, it's going to come out later <laughs> in dysfunction. But it came out later in the logical song, didn't it? I mean, logical song and school and yeah, totally. How much did that help exorcise those demons within you, writing those songs and knowing uh, how widely they were appreciated? Well, I don't know about if it helped me exercise them. I think it was good for me to recognize I felt like that, and I was very happy that that so many other people also felt like that. Um, but I think really it was more the work I did on myself later in life that exercise those demons if you like and they weren't demons as much as just healing those parts of myself that uh, were repressed or uncovered or, or you know coming out in I wasn't allowing to come out you know but being uh, a 
years as children, one imagines you were quite a sensitive child, mm -hmm. which doesn't really work when you're at boarding school, does it? It doesn't, no. I mean... Were you persecuted? Were you bullied? No, I think I'm, I managed to avoid that. Teased maybe a little bit. But uh, again, I think I, I, I managed it by just kind of retreating into uh, my shell. Hide in your shell. Another, yeah, yeah, yeah. another song, you know. Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, going back to California, I really do think, I think England as a whole is healing from that tradition of a stiff upper lip. You know, hold it in, box it in, don't show your feelings. I mean, you know, you can't have, you can't repress all those feelings, emotions, for, and and expect to be a healthy race. And I think in California, as eccentric and as nuts as a lot of it is. Um, that it was much more. There was a, you know, there's a lot of healing, psychological healing, there's all kinds of stuff, spiritual experimentation. There was a lot, just a lot happening. That um, maybe the the whole '60s revolution, that was a kind of a spearhead, if you like. It really had taken off there, and uh, allowed a kind of a rebirthing, if you like, of of the human condition, my human condition, maybe. So it was a good environment for me to go and heal from those those years and uh, I think maybe that's why I stayed away from England for so many years it wasn't actually I, w I was staying away from England it was like I wanted to stay away from that part of myself because I I was exploring the the real me that was come, kind of getting birthed out of me and you and, were exploring music as well you explained and it was coming out music was has always been a way to express anything going on in me if uh, especially in, in England, music really was a way of saying things that I couldn't speak, find anyone to speak about. It says in your bio that you started writing songs at 12, I think. Yeah. And that's also when you said your parents divorced at that time. Do you think that's... <laughs> I have to tell you, the first song I ever wrote is called Please Don't Torture Me. Really? <laughs> <laughs> you mean... <laughs> I mean the rest... <laughs> How did it go? Oh, classic stuff. And was that referring to your parents? Too? It wasn't, but but just the, the title. I mean, mm. I don't know what it was referring to, just that I had that thought. As I was walking down the avenue, I met a girl who looked just like you. <laughs> and then I saw her in... I don't believe I remember this. And then I saw her in front of me, a girl plainly I could see. And I cried, torture. <laughs> Oh my God! I can just I remember it. <laughs> Please don't Roger's talk. First song. Exclusive rendition. So it was a girl-boy song. Not that there was any girl at that time, but. They didn't get girls. No, no. But this was Woodcut House. Oh, okay, right. Yeah. It, my, I did my first sort of concert at thirteen. Actually, just I think that just before I left. So you did school concerts. One there. And you never did any at Stowe? Oh, many. Many oh, right. at Stowe, yeah. So you must have become a bit of a school hero through those <coughs> concerts, weren't you? I, mean, they must have um, I don't think so. I think more of a hero since I've left. And I've right. So were your concerts at school not long-awaited, not much uh, anticipated? I wouldn't say that. <laughs> no, I, you weren't a great singer in those days, then? No, I, uh, no. I mean, I was in different bands, and we'd play school dances, and, mm. you know, we, every... If we did a bad performance, we'd change our name and come back and do another one. Right. <laughs> Were there any other members of Supertramp that went to public school? Um, no. Because it's actually, always been... Actually, Rick was um, my counterpart. He was really from Swindon. Yeah, I know. Grand more, school. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he went to art school. And 
because Genesis were Charterhouse, weren't they? And everyone yeah. always said Stowe was Supertramp, but it's only you, really, wasn't it? It is. Yeah, yeah it is only me, yeah. yeah. Did you excel at anything else at school? Was, it, or was music always going to be your likely career? <clears throat> it was really what I was... Um, I mean, I enjoyed sports, but I mean, school, uh, music was really... I knew that was it. Mm. I didn't know how it, it, it was going to be it, but uh, the rest of school, I was just biding my time and doing what I felt I should to get through and get scraped through A-levels and everything and get out of there. Mm. When I left boarding school, I immediately grew my hair really long because all the way through my five years, I've been told to keep it short. Oh, yeah. Was that something you did out of response to being told to keep it short at Stowe? Yeah. Oh yeah, and I remember that. You, you have it as long as you can. Yeah, right. <laughs> Let it touch you. <laughs> yeah. So it was a, a response to that that you grew your hair long. Well, I think it, it, long hair was had happened way before I left school because I left school in '68 and the Beatles had long hair and everything. Yeah, so yeah. Um, it, it was yeah, it's what I liked. Mm. I like I like long hair. I mean, I'm you know, I know I'm totally out of touch, out of step with the times, but. Um, I've always just felt, I've always just loved, liked uh, long hair. And you have a unique singing voice, no doubt about that. When did mm-hmm. that first come about, or was it just naturally always quite high? Um, it was always, always high. I mean, I actually, I went into puberty very late, I think 16, 15, 16. I don't know whether that had anything to do with it, but um, I, don't, I don't think it did. It just, uh, I don't know why I, I do have the ability to sing high. My voice didn't break till I was late. I think I remember I was called Squeaker. <laughs> Boy, it's amazing how much is coming back. Mm. He, he does do it. Do my research. Yeah. yeah. Um, what did you think you were going to do when you left school? What was the plan? I really didn't. I remember I had a, a crazy plan, and it was totally based, not based in anything real at all. Um, but my mother pressured me for, uh, what are you going to do? You know. You know, she wanted me to have a career. I mean, she she was really very supportive. But but when I was we left school and I was at home for six months, she was getting a little uh, wanted you know get moving. <laughs> um, the only crazy idea I had at the time, I don't know why I thought of it, was maybe to go to the Duke of Bedford, who I heard was an eccentric man, and see if he wanted to sponsor. <laughs> Did he have a big stately home near you or something? I don't know. Wh- I don't know what gave me the idea. He's a I haven't. I, I don't have a clue. I don't even know why I came up with that idea. But, <laughs> but luckily, the the the, um, the traffic had a cottage nearby in um, near Reading. The rock group traffic. Yeah. Right. Steve okay. Winwood, and so that was a huge deal. That yeah. there was a rock group who I really liked their yeah. music of living close by. So I went uh, went a couple of times, knock on their door and say hi, and 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 uh, eventually met them and actually befriended the. Um, the roadie, the roadie would come over a couple of times to my house, invite him over, and then eventually he, after much prodding, he took a demo tape that I'd made up to uh, a publisher, uh, Lionel Conway of Blue Mountain Music, and he liked the results, and that resulted in the in the first single that I made, which was Mr. Boyd. Well, that was right. that was Elton John yeah. on the session band, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And do you remember him from then? Do you do you have a strong not very strong. I'm Did you have a gut feeling, or had anyone said to you, you know, there's something about you which is going to be very special one day and experience great success? Or did you just dream that kind of thing? It was really dreams. Um, I didn't. I think when you're young, you, you know, you don't limit your dreams. And um, 
I know, I just knew what I wanted, yeah. wanted to do, and the songs, you know, just really did get better and better over time. How old were you when you wrote Breakfast in America? Because there's all those myths over the years. Yeah, well, I think I was 19 or 20. So was that on the demo tape that the guy had? No, no, it was just prior to that. Oh. The lyrics to Breakfast in America could be construed as rather unflattering towards the fairer sex. Have you ever had any flack from feminists or anything for, you know, take a look at my girlfriend, she's the only one I've got, not much of a girlfriend? Mm, no, 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 I haven't, uh, never had that reaction. Mm. I've always thought of it more as uh, the only only girlfriend I could get. Because mm, mm. always, <coughs> myth has it that Rick didn't like it and didn't want it to be recorded. Yeah, that wasn't a myth, actually, that was, he, he, I mean, it was a, a lyric I wrote when I was 19 or 20, and that was what was obviously going around in my head. So when we recorded it 11 years later, he, he didn't think it was uh, good enough or appropriate. He, he wanted me to rewrite the lyric. It was one of those lyrics that, no, that's the lyric. Take it or leave it. Last night when you were introduced on stage, Richard Allenson described you as the founder of Supertrap, which actually isn't quite right, is it? Technically, maybe, well, I answered an, an advertisement to, yeah. to Rick, but in a way it was the two of us teaming up. That was the... That, that really was when the band started. Anything I was doing before or anything Rick was doing before was something totally separate. So, yeah, he put the ad in, so it's, it's, uh, it's semantics. Bearing in mind, though, that uh, most of the hits and soundtracks <coughs> were your songs, as you've explained, mm -hmm. do you feel that you would have been a success, whichever band you joined, that you could have made those hits into a success with whoever you teamed up with? Didn't hmm. Need them. hmm. I don't know. I think I think I would have achieved some success. It would have been through a different, different way, different artery. I mean, I think to tell you the truth, I think I'm. I feel much more equipped today for success than I was back at 19 or 20. I mean, I I I was very much more shy, unconfident person back then, and it was. I needed the support system of a band. I needed to be in a band, and I could really give my best in that situation. And even when I left the band, it was very hard for me actually to be a solo artist because I didn't feel like a solo artist. I, I still needed that kind of... Yeah. Now I feel like a solo artist. And I think it's because um, a lot of those wounds we talked about from school and everything have, have healed and, and I'm, I'm much happier and more content and more confident. And I actually don't want a band now. I mean, I, you know, I can step out on Wembley Stadium 60,000 and feel comfortable. Well, that, that's a bloody miracle, thinking about who I was back then. I, you know, this did boy's you, come a long way. Did you click with Rick early on? Did you immediately feel <clears throat> this had great potential? Um, we did click, and I, it's funny. I think we clicked in the area of just dysfunction. It's really interesting, but I, I've never said that before. But I remember, I mean, he's a very wounded man too, very wounded. In different ways maybe but, but I think we you know you write he wrote when you write songs like Rudy and Asylum they're very autobiographical believe me and uh, he chose a different path to me I kind of went into the spiritual growth and and trying to fix myself and heal myself and he um, went into a cocoon of material comforts in a way and I hope that doesn't sound judgmental, but that's what he really did choose, and he chose a, a wife that really takes care of him, and and so I think that I experimented with LSD, he didn't, that was a huge turning point, 
I mean, I was very into experimenting and, and expanding and growing and seeking, and he wasn't. I mean, so how many of your hits were written under the influence of certain substances or alcohol? Actually, not not many. Um, they were more more, I think, from the maybe the re results of the experience or the awakening that I had from, but not actually written un ever, under the effects. Were you ever dangerously drawn to those? Drugs? No, it was more experimenting, and I had a great respect actually for for. Uh, yeah, I mean LSD was that's a powerful substance and I tried to always take it in in a safe situation and it was um ended up as being a good experience for me especially with what I wanted to heal because it, the moment I that was a very awakening um suddenly things made sense for the first time and and there were, obviously that's then you go back to who you were afterwards but it, it's like a I don't know. Have you ever done LSD? No. Okay. I always remember the person. I won't name the person who who uh, I used to have these huge arguments with. You know, from my you know him? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was it was someone connect connected with the band. But but uh, we used to uh, have these huge arguments. Um, and I, I was from my boarding school upbringing and my belief systems that had come from boarding school. And and he had he had um, taken psychedelics and he came from that. We used to have huge arguments, and he used to win them. And he always used to end up as a take LSD, and you'll see. <laughs> and uh, so eventually, I did. Um, and uh, it helped. It really helped to unlock a lot of the blocks. And I saw, wow, there's there's a whole level of life that I've shut off, and there's and uh, you know, I, there's a there's a whole world here to discover within me and without of me, without me that I'm not experiencing. That got shut shut down. When I was younger, did you appreciate the really good times of Supertramp? I did, yeah. I mean, Supertramp was really a, a very magical experience. It was a magical experience to go through, and the organisation, the whole, it was it was the closest thing. It was very family. It was a real family feeling for about four, five, six years, and everyone used to comment on it. We used to go around the world, and and everyone couldn't believe how good it, good an energy we carried. It was a really wonderful. Experience. So there must have been a great connection <coughs> between you and Rick for quite a while. There was, yeah, and I think I think deep down there still is, to tell you the truth. When we met up again in um, 1990, I mean, we actually got on better than we ever had. Mm. So I mean, yeah, there is, and I think there's a lot of respect and and and, and, uh, and uh, a very close relationship that that the stuff of life has kind of got in the way. It seems to me, from what, from watching the interviews with you on the DVD and reading stuff about you on the internet, the root cause of the problems has been the songwriting credits, because you constantly mention, you mentioned on stage yesterday, my songs, and mm -hmm. there seemed to be a point of, of great concern to you, that people understand <coughs> songs, mm -hmm. not Supertramp songs, mm -hmm. and yet I've read that you were kind of forced into having a shared byline, as it were, mm -hmm. for the songs, is that right? No, it was a voluntary shared, and I don't feel bad about that. The reason um, I've mentioned it on the DVD and, and even, yes, on stage yesterday, is because um, it, this is a time where I've been away a long time. I mean, people know the songs, know the voice, but they don't know the name. And so I'm just trying to put the put the pieces together for people, because... Um, Supertramp is Supertramp, and it's a part of me. But but the name I'm going under right now is Roger Hodgson, and people need to know what that, okay. 
pill brush I need that's ready. But right from the start, did it annoy you that you shared credits for the songs that you No, no, at the time, and I don't really know because I wasn't, um, the money wasn't the driving force for me. You know, to me, Rick and I were the, the core of the band, and uh, initially when we started the band, we did write together. He'd come up with chords, I'd come up with a melody, and actually we had a third person, Richard Palmer, who wrote the lyrics. And then the next album, the second album, we had developed and we, we'd written songs separately, and yet we still kept to, we still kept to uh, the, the joint songwriting credit. And I think, for me, it was just a way to keep that keep a unity, a unity, and also a unity of um, to avoid any conflict when it came to songs. Because I was a much more prolific songwriter than Rick, and yet, because to keep the balance on albums, generally we tried to have fifty-fifty, five songs of his and five songs yeah. of mine, or whatever. There were a couple of albums where I had six and he had four and I had four and he had three. So to avoid any any conflicts or the, the other argument that could have come up is, you know, I want my song to be the first single. So to avoid all that, um, that's a good way of doing it. I really believe Lennon McCartney probably did the same thing. So how much did he contribute to, like, Dreamer, Breakfast in America, Logical Song? On Dreamer, he contributed... Um, Come on a dream, dream along. Okay, the chorus. Come on a well, it's like a, yeah. a, a tag thing. Yeah. Uh, that's it, really. I mean, the rest, I, I pretty much yeah. totally wrote, even the solo in the middle is mine, too. Breakfast in America, again, it was what you got, not a lot. Mm. <laughs> he was good at coming up with those quirky, kind of catchy things. Mm. But the actual song is really primarily mine. Last year, Yoko Ono talked about taking McCartney's name off some of the credits for the songs for the Beatles. Really? Is that something you've ever considered doing or tried to do? No. No. No, I mean, I, what's done is done. Um, no, what's done is done. I, I'm really just, just gently trying to educate people that the way it was was exactly like Lennon McCartney was. Mm. I think what Yoko wants, she doesn't need to do that. Mm. I mean, I think people really pretty much know that a Lennon song and which are Lennon's and which are, which are McCartney's? I think with Supertramp, it's it's more confused. Mm. You know, people don't know that, so we're just trying to raise the level of awareness there. What was the biggest high in Supertramp, and what was the biggest low? Well, I think the whole journey with Supertramp, the rise to success, was um, it was a wonderful ride. It really was, and especially being in something you really believe in, and uh, that you work really hard. I mean, I sweated blood over every step of the way. But it was really thrilling. I, I remember Crime of the Century was a pretty amazing uh, experience because we had had that three months in the farmhouse in Somerset and where we got to know each other as a band. John had just joined the band, Bob had just joined the band, and we put together the whole Crime of the Century. like a, It was a demo, actually, for the entire album. And then we took it to a, a studio. And... Um, Maybe you'll be interested or not, I'll, I'll tell you. But the way we didn't have computers and automation back then, so the way everything was recorded, there were certain songs we couldn't actually hear the song from beginning to end. There was no way we had until it was actually finally mixed. So that we, we didn't really realize what we'd created until the final mix. And then we heard the album in its entirety, and, and we went, wow. <laughs> it was pretty incredible. And then after, straight after that, then I took off to Morocco, for a month and a half over Christmas, I remember. And um, when I came back from Morocco, I got off the plane, and, and there on the Melody Maker 
stand was um, Crime of the Century number one. Mm -hmm. So that was quite a fantastic. Huh? Yeah, that was quite a. So, uh, what caused the differences? Was it jealousy that you were the main songwriter and the lead singer? Was, was that a cause of envy among the others? No, I think it was really more uh, personal, personal needs, personal desires, conflicting with, with the band. Uh, up until Breakfast in America, or actually not even Breakfast in America, before that actually, um, you know, we'd been five guys touring the world, really. But um, from it was actually around the time of even the quietest moments that uh, Rick um, got married to Sue, and. Rick wasn't even in the, in the studio for most of even the quietest moments. And uh, I also married a very strong woman. And the two women didn't see eye to eye, didn't like each other at all. So my relationship with my wife took me to Northern California, away from Los Angeles, where the rest of the band was, which immediately created a divide between me and the rest of the band. And Sue created a, a divide with, um, between Rick and the rest of us. Because up until that point, I mean, I remember the Crisis What Crisis tour and the um, Quietest Moments tour. The band and the crew, we all, we all, it was like one thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I used to set up the equipment with the crew. That was my exercise, like setting up the equipment. We all used to stay in the same hotels. It was very, as I said, a, a unified family. Come Breakfast in America, you know, Rick and, well, Sue specifically wanted to stay in the the best hotel in town and mm. so we started being all in different hotels yeah. and then I was just as crazy I wanted to go by motorhome so <laughs> so I was driving a motorhome they were staying in the five star luxury hotels the rest of the band were were um, in a in a hotel somewhere so it started to really separate were there ever fisticuffs punch ups no it, it wasn't it was more silent animosity silent animosity mm. silent you know, silent, uh, passive-aggressive stuff. It was really more a growing apart. It wasn't really nasty. It never got nasty. It was just more a growing apart and more difficult to, to uh, keep together. Yeah. And I think that's, it's a natural... Well, I say it's a natural evolution. It was for us. I mean, I see bands like U2 that can keep to stay together. Uh, hats off to them. It's wonderful. Stones, yeah. um, but I think, I think behind U2, there must be wives that support what the band want to do they probably get on when you don't have those other support characters in your life getting on and when they're very strong it can really create forces that pull something apart yeah. but I also just really also think that um, the other the other factor for me was that I suddenly had children yeah. I had a family and I realized that after 14 years of putting my blood and soul into something like Supertramp yeah. I knew I couldn't keep going with that. And, well, I couldn't do that and also learn how to be a parent. I didn't have a clue how to parent these two beings that had just come to me. And I realized that, okay, well, I think it's, it's, it feels time with everything that's going on with Supertramp that it, it, it feel, there's a, a completion here. And I have to uh, go where my heart is calling, which is learning how to be a parent and also be there for my kids too. So I actually came off the road for a good 16 years and uh, built a home studio so I could stay at home and um, learned how to be a dad. Do you think you'd have been pushed if you hadn't jumped from Supertramp? Hmm, that's a good question. I don't, I don't know. Do I don't think th they wanted you out by then, though, because of the differences? Uh, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. I think it, it just... Hmm, that's a good question. I don't think so. I mean, they knew where their bread was buttered. <laughs> so tell us about the day um, you had it in the United States. How did that happen? 
I don't know whether to, it's, it's a complicated one. It was around the Famous Last Words tour. The whole band, including I, wanted to tour Famous Last Words and, and Rick and Sue didn't. And then suddenly they turned around and said, we're, we, we're going to tour if you don't want... And, and meanwhile, I, I, I'd accept that there wasn't going to be a tour and I went off to do a solo record. And then suddenly they, they turn around and say, well, we're going to tour and uh, if you don't want to do it, um, we're going to continue without you or something. It was, it was very strange. So it was more symbolic of what was happening at the time. Did you ever say goodbye, or was that done by your lawyers? Did I ever say goodbye, what, personally? Mm. No, I did say goodbye. They gave me a gold watch at the end of the famous last words so, to, on stage. Yeah. On stage? Yeah. Okay, so do you still have it? Do you treasure it, or did you chuck it? I know, it's... it's, pro- it it's no. <laughs> no, now you, now you mention it, it'll probably be on eBay next week. <laughs> <laughs> Let me know, I'll buy it. <laughs> <laughs> so you, have, you don't know where it is? You didn't treasure it? Then. I didn't treasure it, no. It's in a drawer somewhere, I can't yeah. remember. And did you think that was it? Did you think uh, you'd ever be back with them or it would just be a temporary thing? Or? No, I felt I felt like it was it. Mm. Yeah. How emotional was that last night? Did you cry when you hugged them or did you just shake hands? And Well, the whole tour was emotional. The whole tour was very, very emotional um, because it was the first time, actually, that I'd I'd announced on stage, right. and the first thing that I have to say is I'm leaving the band. How did um, the crowd but, react? Was there a massive? Oh yeah, there's a major boo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I you know I also turned it into thanking them for, yeah. for supporting yeah. the band through the yeah, years yeah, yeah, yeah. and and then uh, saying give a little bit. <laughs> oh, did you? Excellent. But, uh, but I also yeah. you know said to them listen you're going to get yeah. twice as much music believing naively that that would be the case. But and did you think that you would go off and become a solo star and that would the rest of your career? Well, I, knowing the, the part I played in Supertramp, I had a lot of confidence in myself musically. But um, what I didn't really take into account was I didn't have the support system mm. around me that Supertramp had um, in terms of everything you need. You don't, it's not just about talent, it's about everything supporting that talent. And so it, became, it was more difficult than, uh, difficult than I thought it was going to be, definitely. Was it like a difficult <coughs> really got into your system and affected you badly? What, the... The, the break-up from the band, did it... Uh... No, not really the break-up of the band. It was more... Again, I really think uh, there was two things that happened. One, the giving prior, my making my first priority to my kids felt really good. But uh, also what happened was that uh, my identity was so wrapped up in Supertramp because I'd devoted 14 years of my life since school to Supertramp. So everything that was good about me was in that name. Mm. I'd invested everything in that name. Did you try to buy the name? No, that was not not possible to do at that time. Right. It was more it was more on a personal level though, because my identity it was suddenly like my identity was stripped stripped away, mm. and the name then that I needed to go under was my own personal name. Mm. Well, that's very different. It's kind of like working for a company that you really believe in their product, and you just go to work and oh my god I really feel great about this company but then suddenly you're the company and I wasn't um, I didn't have the self-confidence or the self-belief in myself to go out there and really champion my own name that's a whole different psychology and uh, so I think that initiated maybe a period of uh, self-doubt or maybe the self-doubt was in there but it wasn't it was hiding behind the name Supertramp it didn't matter that you know we all had stuff lack of self-confidence or whatever it doesn't sure. but it doesn't matter the band you know you all kind of compensate for each other and it works 
think I might be saying you kind of drew a line in the sand about the songs, and that Rick could only then on sing his songs, and you. There was yeah, there was a verbal agreement that that. Um, and why I felt good, okay about leaving the band was I knew I was taking my voice and, and taking my songs and I, I got a verbal agreement from Rick that he wouldn't perform my songs live. Well, he did. And he did, yeah. He didn't for the first tour. He didn't uh, for about four or five years, I think. And then he capitulated under pressure. Because there was nothing in writing, there was nothing I could do. Mm. And, but I, mean, I, mean, I let him know how upset I was, yeah. Mm. And the rest of the band, too. And has that been a major problem for you ever since? It has been a major problem, yeah, because I mean, I talked to him when we met, met in 1990, and I talked to him about it, and, and uh, he still continued to do it even after that. So, uh, I mean, I don't lose sleep over it. It's not something I'm, I, you know, it just is, and people know, and I, I, I don't think it does him much good or the band much good, because I don't think that they do, um, I don't think the songs sound very good. I think there have been efforts to get the band back together as it was a couple of times since you left in 83. Mm -hmm. Isn't that right? I think in, let's say, about 1990, and I think um, more recently, just a few years ago, it's like there been two. Well, there are many efforts, there's always been many efforts from outside. Right. Um, in 1990, uh, actually, Rick, myself, and John came together to do a, uh, an, a reception, an honouring of Jerry Moss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and that felt really good. And it was after that that uh, we explored maybe doing another project together. And um, ultimately, that didn't didn't work out. What has been the key to it not working out? At that point, really, it was um, hmm. it was the wives again. I'm afraid. Yeah. So the you still hope that there might be a. There, there, there. Yeah, I mean, anything's possible. Do you still live yeah. when you last? Just, I mean, even in in handling the, the past, you know, there needs to be cooperation too. I think a few years ago you played with Ringo Starr's all-star band. Yeah. What was that experience like to actually play with one of the Beatles? Because I think you yeah. said that they'd originally been your heroes. Yeah, that was that was a really good experience. Um, it's always fun hearing the stories firsthand from Ringo. Hmm. You know, so what's again. the best story he told you? <laughs> you know, we see, see see it when you when you start seeing the stories from the inside. I mean, it wasn't all uh, all fun being a Beatle. I mean, there were times they were hidden hid out in the gents, you know, just to because that was the only place they could they be could normal. hide. Yeah, be yeah. normal. Yeah. But he was that was he was good. I enjoyed him. You got any other you know, people you'd like to work with? Perhaps <coughs> No, not none of this. I mean, Trevor Rabin, I, I did some work with. You probably know that. I mean, I, I've always uh, there's a very strong chemistry there. We may do something at some point one day. But um, no, to tell you the truth, I'm really enjoying the course I'm on and I'm uh, not to if it happens great but I'm not looking to looking to do joint ventures with people do you feel you've been given the credit that you deserve um I think I'm being given the credit right now I deserve I think I'm really grateful that, that, that the music is being recognized and my songwriting abilities are being recognized and and the songs are, are being appreciated as much as they are right now so I, I don't need any more than that uh, I'm just very happy to have an audience and a wonderful audience like this at, at this stage of my life with songs that I wrote so many years ago it's, it's pretty magical but is this kind of return that you're having now of the tour of the DVD is this kind of you staking your claim now in history sort of saying listen don't forget me you know I was an integral part of this fantastic family no no it's not staking a claim it's uh um, I mean, the, the, on the PR front, yes, there's a, there's a um, connecting the dots 
mission, if you like, you know, by uh, my management and and uh, you know people that need the the name Roger Hodgson to be recognised more for who Roger Hodgson is. But really, my um, the driving force now is really to do with um, it's really what the song is: give a little bit. It's give a little bit in action. I mean, I really feel that uh, what you saw a little <coughs> snapshot of on at Wembley and you saw the DVD. Yeah. I mean, I really do... I feel good when I'm making people feel good. I've learned through all my journey, life journey, if you like, some secrets to being happy. And I really want to share that happiness. And, and, and part of it... And obviously share the songs, but they go hand in hand to me because these are songs that I never get tired of singing. I love these songs. Some people may think it's a waste that you haven't been part of Sip Trap all these years. What mm-hmm. would you say to them? Um, I think it's wishful thinking a little bit because I think a band is a marriage, is it, except it's a marriage of four people. And then once you get wives in the picture, it's a marriage of a lot of people. Well, that's a very unwieldy relationship to try and keep together. You don't need a manager. You need a psychiatrist more than a, more than a manager at, at that point. And I think when a marriage has gone sour... What do you do? Do you hang on to it because the world says you should? Or because other people think, oh, you can't separate? No, if you're uh, unhappy in a marriage, it, it's run its course. How do you feel about these the gym class heroes and uh, Scooter doing these versions of uh, your hits? A mixed. Let's see the, the gym this, class heroes. That's their album, actually. The track is on there. Okay. Breakfast in America cover. Well, I felt better after they added the Breakfast in America credit. She quite liked the song. It's, it's, um, I'm very happy that the song has brought them the success because it really is the, it's the Breakfast in America hook that, that make, makes the yeah, yeah, yeah. success. Yeah, but I think they've you know they've they've uh, built something built something quite good around it. So I actually quite like that. How would you like people to remember you after you've left this planet? It'd be wonderful to have left a musical legacy that people still enjoy after I've left. I'm not going to be really thinking much about it I think I think more I'd like to feel like I've left a good mark in my wake I think that's the most important thing actually probably in my life that's the most important thing especially the older you get the more um, I want to leave this world feeling like okay I did the best I could and and, um, there's nothing I regret and so far I mean I think I'm pretty um, on course to tell you the truth because I mean I feel like I'm doing what I love to do and giving a little bit to the world. It's not going to change the world, but it's hopefully making people happy, giving them some food for their spirits. And the gold albums don't mean anything to me anymore. You know, I'm at the trophies. That's that that was wonderful back then, but I don't need any more. It's more uh, dying happy and in peace, really, and being ready to go, feeling complete. Feeling like, okay, I'm ready to go now. And I think I'll know when that time comes. <laughs>